Environmentalists sue big oil companies over climate science. Animal rights activists demand to pass legislation to let all chicken be free range. The Constitution is called to the carpet by the mainstream media and a cry for socialism follows behind. Also, we're joined by the Bearded Patriot on The Adrian Slade Show. The presidential motorcade was just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's The Adrian Slade Show. Our school systems are littered with socialist indoctrination. From college to almost kindergarten, they are filling these kids' heads with vapid nonsense. This is the battlefield. This is why it's important when people like Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder and even Charlie Kirk, when they go to these campuses to discuss the ideology and put it in a, in a, in a framed way, a framed manner that will be attractive to those who are a part of the new counterculture, because we are the new counterculture. And they go to these campuses to lay out the case for conservatism and for small government. And there's always huge backlash because they're all indoctrinated. I mean, look what they're doing with the Second Amendment. I can guarantee that they barely even touch the fundamental understanding of the Constitution. Half of them couldn't even tell you all of the components of the First Amendment outside of freedom of speech, maybe press and religion. You know, they're not looking at assembly or, uh, uh, you know, grievances and what have you. So, you know, if they actually did understand and taught the Constitution, they would rethink any of these marching for our live events. Our Second Amendment rights now have to hinge upon underage children who will go along with walking out of school just so they can get out of class and hang at the mall. Does anyone remember the Just Say No Club that Nancy Reagan started? Just say no to drugs. I remember when I was in school, I had 16-year-old friends who I knew. You know, they're out there smoking cigarettes. They probably did bong hits later uh, that evening, selling dime bags for Air Jordans and video games that they bought. They all joined the Just Say No Club even though they were saying yes. And they did this just so that they could walk out of their class and sit in these mundane assemblies and they wouldn't have to do any work. So these same kids are going to go along and make these movements look bigger than they are simply because they just want to get out of class for a little while. And we get kids who are emboldened in their stupidity and ignorance, believing the talking points they've been given, and then they're stepping in front of the exploitive media cameras in order to spout them off. We came here prepared, and we're going to come to every single meeting, every single legislator prepared. We know what we want. We want gun reform. We want common sense gun laws. We want stronger mental health checks and background checks to work in conjunction. We want a better age limit. We want privatized selling to be completely reformed so you can't just walk into a building with $130 and walk out with an AR-15. Great. So a kid under the age of 18 telling us that we need to make the age to purchase a gun 21. And the media wants to lower the voting age for this same kid down to 16. You know, they can barely get a learner's permit, but we should let them dictate governmental policy. I bet this chick will be pulling a hey mister to get someone to buy her, you know, limeritas or a box of Franzia Chardonnay that she can't legally buy when she goes to the next frat party kegger underage. The same will happen for adults that cannot get some ammo or a gun for protection under the age of 21. But these are the seeds planted in the youth 
by the educational indoctrination. And $130 for an AR-15? Where the heck can you get those? Is she talking about the Chinese models? Because guess what? Trump's tariffs, they go into effect. That rifle's going to cost about 1300 at this point. But again, educational indoctrination by progressives to rot the nation from within. I mean, there's so many reports from campus reform that you can see examples of all of this. One in particular said the University of Minnesota has invited a professor dedicated to dismantling whiteness to speak next week on how whiteness is an existential threat to the United States. Lisa Anderson Levy believes that teaching is a political act. Again, teaching is a political act. So if you had any questions, she says it right there. And she's going to discuss ways to decenter whiteness at academic institutions. During her lecture, she is slated to speak on a number of issues, including the violence of whiteness and how colleges and universities in the United States may be complicit in perpetuating this violence. This presentation explores the ubiquity and violence of whiteness and the ways in which academic institutions are poised to either reproduce or interrupt these discourses. She argues that whiteness poses an existential threat to social, uh, political, and economic life in the United States and proposes that decentering whiteness is one of the most urgent social dilemmas of our time and demands our immediate attention. I mean, this, this, these are the same people that are resisting because this lady lost, the same lady who they voted for. In fact, listen to her explanation of the citizens of our great nation. If you look at the map of the United States, there's all that red in the middle where Trump won. I win the coasts, I win, you know, Illinois and Minnesota, places like that. But what the map doesn't show you is that I won the places that represent two-thirds of America's gross domestic product. So I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, moving forward, and his whole campaign, Make America Great Again, was looking backwards. You know, you didn't like black people getting rights. You don't like women, you know, getting jobs. You don't want to, you know, see that Indian American succeeding more than you are. Whatever your problem is, I'm going to solve it. So she goes on to insult half of the nation in an overseas nation of India while trying to convince herself that she didn't lose for the exact reasons why she insulted all of America, or maybe the non-coastal parts that don't have the big GDP. And she did this speaking to an audience in another country. You know, her explanation fell down the stairs just as she did actually twice leaving the event, looking like Panama Jack. She fell down twice. Now, I covered these two stories that I'm about to cover again on my Quick Rant podcast last week, but I think I need to revisit them again to set the table for some of the stories that I've run across in order to show you how the socialist progressives are moving the football to the five-yard line, even without having any grasp on political power. They don't even need political power because they've captured the culture. And you have to place the divide over the current worldview being propagated and couple that with the view of their role of government. This is the factor. Government is their God. They don't look at natural rights or a creator. They look at the fact that there's got to be a group of people that make the decisions 
And if something happens, we have to do something. Doesn't matter what it is. Pass some bills, pass some laws, put up some regulations. Got to do something. So obviously they would glom towards socialism because that's the essence of a collective group of people that basically run the show. Centralized power. You know, take over the means of production. Do it better than anyone else can do because you think these group of this group of people is more qualified, more intelligent to do it. So the first story was from this week or from the week. America's Constitution is terrible. Let's throw it out and start over. Yeah, that's exactly what they wrote about. The American Constitution is an outdated, malfunctioning piece of junk. Really? And it's only getting worse. When written, the Constitution made a morally hideous compromise with slavery that took a war and 750,000 lives to make right. And while its basic structure sort of worked for a while in the 20th century, the Constitution is now falling prey to the same defects that has toppled every other similar governing document all over the world. Which, on a side note, cannot be further from the truth. In fact, it is the one enduring form of government nobody ever tried and was still ongoing. The only reason why there is a hit on the Constitution is because no one is upholding it. No one is adhering to it. And no one recognizes it. Going back to the article... The truth seems clear. America is going to have to overhaul its basic structure of government or eventually it will fall to pieces. The major problem with America's constitution is that it creates a system in which elections generally do not produce functioning governments and there is no mechanism to break the deadlock, like calling snap elections. Now, another side note. There is a reason for deadlock. There is a reason for the fact that you have to go through a House Ways and Means Committee to bring something to the House, to bring it before uh you know, the Senate and the Senate goes through their committee and then to bring it before a full vote of the Senate and then bring it before Congress. And then that brings it before the president. And if the president doesn't, you know, take it, it goes back to Congress. All of that is by design. It's by a rigorous process only to eke out what is beneficial to the people at large so that all the other ridiculous ideas will get grinded out in the grinder and The majority of them stopped because there will be enough people to look at it from every angle and say, ah, this isn't good for us at all. So just going along to get along to make things streamlined and push crap through is that's a worldview issue. That is a issue, a view of government that is governments are God. So we got to make it faster to get things done for regulations to go through for governing the people when it's actually the opposite. We want to protect our God-given rights, so putting something through as a regulation has to go through holy hell and hell fire to make it out the other side to actually show up on the books. But anyways, going back to the article, most of the time, control of the House, Senate, and presidency is split between two parties in some way. Bipartisan compromises to keep government functioning used to be common, but are nearly impossible due to extreme party polarization. To fix the problem, America should aim to make itself more like a proportional parliamentary democracy. Really? Do you know what democracy does? Do you know that mob rule leads to a totalitarian government? You say, how does that happen? It's democracy. Everybody gets a vote. Everybody gets a say. Well, it's mob rule. And if you get enough people to support a charismatic leader who sometimes can be dangerously charismatic... It can lead to this. 
It can lead to somebody who is continually being put into power by the majority of the popular vote and without term limits stays there, you know, for forever. And basically that power becomes a hunger that they wish to remain in control and they wish to yield the power that they have because they, you can be influenced in so many dangerous ways when you're given that kind of power. But, you know, they think it's the most successful and road-tested form of government based on what the article states. One of these days, a standoff will come to a head and will lead to some kind of total legal breakdown. Legal mechanisms like the Constitutional Convention are completely untested and would probably create a such explosive controversy that we would effectively end up with a new constitution anyways. Untested? They've been tested centuries ago, decades ago. The thing is, we can't do one now for the, re- for the same reasons why gridlock exists. Because going through a constitutional convention would be so, it would be so grueling that you would get to a point where what you're fighting for through a constitutional convention better be something very pertinent and very necessary for it to come to pass. Going back to the article, make no mistake, a constitutional collapse would be a tremendously destabilizing and dangerous event. You know, they just kind of throw that in there. Got to crack a few eggs. You know, some people might die, you know, in the process of socialism. Eh, It's no biggie. Got to crack a few eggs. That's how they look at it. That's how they view human life. That's why they don't care about aborting babies. That's why they think they've eradicated Down syndrome in Iceland. And they, you know, no big deal. We can eradicate uh, Down syndrome here in America because, you know, if I'm given the choice to know whether or not my child is going to be a designer baby, whether I can say, oh, he's got Down syndrome. Ah, let's start fresh. Get rid of that one. Let's try again. Let's roll the dice. See if we can get another uh, fresh, uh, you know, clean fetus out of the deal. You know, that's how they view human life. Yeah, it's a destabilizing, dangerous event. No biggie. And it's going to raise a significant chance of insurrection, civil war, or military dictatorship. Really? Not a biggie, huh? But if and when it comes, it won't be by choice. It'll be because ancient, janky mechanisms of the American constitutional uh, you know, setups have simply failed. If we wish to avoid such a breakdown, moderating reforms like the ones mentioned earlier in this column, which I'm not even going to go through because all of them are ridiculous, must be considered and adopted. So I'm going to get into the other article on socialism and how let's give socialism a try to show this is all setting the table for these things that I'm going to show you on the other side of how they're pushing this progressive ball across the finish line. Back in a moment. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. The ongoing indoctrination that we've allowed to fester in the academia sector with academic tenure for our teachers and our administrators and the nationalization of our public school system caused All of this desire for socialism that you're seeing, it leads to articles like the one we covered on our quick rant. I felt I should include it in the full show this week. It's time to give socialism a try. Yeah, no. Here's from the article. This is Washington Post, so mainstream media here, guys. In the United States, we've arrived at a pair of mutually exclusive convictions that liberal capitalist democracies are guaranteed by their nature to succeed 
and that in our Trumpist moment, they seem to be failing in deeply unsettling ways. For liberals, and by this I mean inheritors of the long liberal tradition, not specifically those who might also be called progressives, efforts to square these two notions have typically combined expressions of high anxiety with reassurances that if we only have the right attitude, everything will set itself all right. Hanging on and hoping for the best is certainly one approach to rescuing the best of liberalism from its discontents, but my answer is admittedly more ambitious. It's time to give socialism a try. Andrew Sullivan recently lamented in New York Magazine, There are moments when everything I have come to believe in, reason deliberation, mutual toleration, liberal democracy, free speech, honesty, decency, moderation, seem as if they are all in eclipse. For the foreseeable future, nationalism is likely to remain a defining political force. Yashka Monk fretted in his column in the New York Times, liberals should strive to make nationalism as inclusive as possible, he warned. The notion that everything will be or is already all right, granted the correct attitude that we're better than this, as Joe Biden confidently declares in his newly launched political action committee's website, look for a 2020 run, appears particularly frail. It's hard to square the late Obama era instance with the America's already great with the palpable sense that something in the climate, the economy, the society and politics in the wellspring of American ideas is going badly wrong. I'm not to be confused with a totalitarian nostalgist. I would support a kind of socialism that would be democratic and aim primarily at decommodifying labor, reducing the vast inequality brought about by capitalism and breaking capital's stranglehold over politics and culture. I don't think that every problem can be traced back to capitalism. There are calamities and injustices long before capitalism, and I'd venture to say there will be after. But it seems to me that it's time for those who expected to enjoy the end of history to accept that. Though we're linked in certain aspects, capitalism seems to be at odds with the harmonious, peaceful, and stable liberalism of mid-century dreams. So that's from the Washington Post. Thankfully, we have somebody like Ben Shapiro who can articulate why this is an awful idea and even get the attention of the author who opined its silliness from Ben Shapiro in the Daily Wire. The Washington Post uh, columnist memorably wrote that she wished for an upsurge in support for socialism. He said, I critique that column. Now she's written a response to that critique, claiming that I, among others, interpreted her in bad faith for mentioning several countries that have tried socialism and failed, from Venezuela to the Soviet Union, and for pointing out that many of the supposedly socialist countries that socialists so often proclaim as their examples aren't actually socialists. See Denmark and Sweden. Shapiro continues, According to the author, I wronged her by mentioning those countries, Venezuela and Soviet Union, and I also wronged her by mentioning Nordic states socialists frequently claim as their own. Now, you would expected her to rebut the presumption that Sweden and Denmark are capitalist countries with uh, redistributionist tendencies, and they claim that they're actually socialists, but she doesn't bother. Instead, she sets up a new metric. She doesn't want full-scale socialism. She wants some sort of redistributionism here and there. But let's take a look at the Nordic states, he states. Norway's wealth ownership is thanks to their nationalization of their oil industry, like the United Arab Emirates and, and Venezuela. This gives them an enormous amount of cash to play with, with their social fund, their wealth fund, worth $1 trillion, was seeded with oil money. The oil industry 
represents approximately 22% of Norway's GDP, two-thirds of their exports. Also pays 36% of the national governor's or government's revenue. That's not the extent of their government holdings. Norway also nationalized all German-owned stocks after World War II, which partly explains the state's high level of ownership in the stock market. Stock holding in companies does not mean the state runs the companies. In fact, the board runs the company separately, not for the benefit of the state specifically or for the benefit of the workers, as Marx would prefer. Norwegian law requires that all shareholders be treated equally with no preference for state shareholders. In fact, companies in which the state owns majority stock have gone into bankruptcy before. The state essentially operates along along the lines of so-called state capitalism. That's what you're seeing in China, by the way. China requires you to participate within that metric to where if you want to operate within their borders, well, then you have to let them purchase shares of your business. And that is how they're able to come up with this faux capitalism on the outside. Going back to Shapiro's assessment, um, as I was talking about earlier, the board runs the companies separately in these Nordic style nations or these Nordic style uh, economies, not for the benefit of the state specifically, which is where China differs for them because China does do it for the benefit of the state. But these countries do it for the benefit of their workers, as Marx would prefer. Norwegian law requires that all shareholders be treated equally with no preference for state shareholders. In fact, companies in which the state owns majority stock have even gone into bankruptcy before. The state essentially operates along the lines of so-called state capitalism. Furthermore, Norway is relatively friendly to business and has a great business uh, climate. Heritage Foundation ranks it 23rd in the world with the United States ranking in at number 18. More than that, it's important to recognize that the total population of Norway is 5.6 million. The total population of the United States is 323 million. It's also rather important to recognize that cultural homogeny exists in Norway. Just 15.6% of the population are immigrants or children of immigrants, and 32% of the population has a higher education degree. Why does that matter? Because if we're to compare Norway to the United States, we should probably compare Norwegian Americans with Norwegians in Norway. Here's National Review's Nima Sendajaya. It was mainly the impoverished people in the Nordic countries who sailed across the Atlantic to find new lives. And yet, as she writes in her book, Danish Americans today have fully 55% higher living standards than Danes. Similarly, Swedish Americans have a 53% higher living standard than Swedes. The gap is even greater, 59% between Finnish Americans and Finns. Even though Norwegian Americans lack the oil wealth of Norway, they have 3% higher living standard than their cousins overseas. So how's that state capitalism working out? Norway has a significantly higher per capita GDP than that of the United States, about 70600 per year, as opposed to 50500 in the United States. But a large portion of that capita per GDP is due to oil wealth. And the top personal income tax rate is 47.8%, and the corporate tax rate is 25%. Overall, the tax burden represents 38.1% of domestic total domestic income compared to 26.4% in the United States. Government spending amounts to 486 of GDP 
compared to 38.1 in the United States. Norway is an incredibly expensive country to live. It is the second most expensive country to buy food in Europe and the most expensive to buy alcohol and tobacco. A haircut can cost $50. Vehicles can cost nearly twice as much as in the United States. Food costs vastly more than the United States. There's a reason that in 2013, Norway elected a far more conservative government. And they re-elected that government in 2017. So is Norway actually a socialist country? Not quite. It's far more socialistic than the United States, but that's not really a good thing, which is why immigration to Norway has been historically low, why immigration to the United States has remained remarkably high, and making apples-to-orange comparisons between Norway and the United States isn't statistically and intellectually honest. It's just like, think about India. Go watch Slumdog Millionaire. I know it's a fictional movie, but there are some aspects to it historically that they cover. They cover the fact that it took them until the 1950s to decide to make any move towards capitalism. And as soon as they did, it exploded. Granted, they were still in poverty and they were still digging their way out. There was much more mobility for the citizens as soon as they injected capitalism. It's like I talked about with Russia and Cuba. Cuba's tourist district flourishes because it injected a bit of capitalism. Even putting just a tad bit of capitalism is going to benefit your country of fascistic governing styles, totalitarian governing styles, communist governing styles. You know, that's why Russia, after the fall and after perestroika and after they rebuilt, started moving in a better direction is because they embraced some elements of capitalism. But, you know, as I've mentioned before, individuals always want to deflect the overall foundation of socialism or its logical evolution to a different shades of gray methodology. You know, oh, it's not, it's not communism. It's Stalinist workers governing, you know, style. What? What does that even mean? It's not socialism. It's totalitarian. It, it all boils down and ends at the same road, at the same dead end. Listen to this exchange between Charlie Kirk and a student in college over the discussion of socialism. Can you tell me one place where your idea works today? Uh, I mean, it's not implemented at all today. So, like, I, I, again, like one, what, what does North Korea do wrong? Um, what, sorry? North Korea. How is it not a communist country? Uh, it is a Stalinist generic worker state. Or deformed worker state. So, what would be a country that's close to what you believe? Uh, the Wow, that's working out great. Four thousand percent inflation. They're eating dogs in the streets. Average average citizens lost twenty pounds. I mean, they always go to Venezuela and then they always turn around and say, "Ah, oh, well, you know, Venezuela wasn't a socialist government." So, what is the definition of socialism? I mean, it is the centralized planning of a governing body who basically takes over the means of production. Well, Venezuela took over the oil production, and it worked great when the oil price was high, till we started fracking and innovating, till the Saudis started unnaturally hiking their price to where we competed in different ways and brought that down. Russia had their economy pegged to the oil dollar too, and, and look what happened. When the oil price went down, Russia was in complete economic collapse. Venezuela, much more so to where their people are fleeing. There's pictures of people on bridges, just people fleeing out of that nation. So 
when someone tells you, oh, well, you know, it's not really com- it's not really socialism, they're lying to you. But the schools are littered with this. And that leads us to two stories that should be disturbing as crazy as they are. One of them deals with animal rights. And this comes from The Guardian. They call Chris Wynn the signatures guy, a delivery driver by day. He spends his free time drumming up support for animal rights. When I did a shark, ban, a shark fin ban, I got 4,000 signatures, says Wynn, 53 years old. Usually I'm the top guy in California. Now he's on a new mission. Don't you love these fluff pieces, how they frame these pieces? They get all, you know, storified and they, they put it in some sort of, you know, storybook kind of way and they, they prop it up as just beautiful looking. He's on a new mission. It's a cold Saturday afternoon in San Francisco and Wynn is jubilant. Bundled in a hat and sweatshirt, scouring for signatories for a proposed law that would ban the sale of any eggs, pork, or veal that comes from an animal that spent its life in a cage. If passed, it would be the most progressive farm animal welfare law in the world. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to push it through legislation. They're going to wield that upon you because listen how they do it. This law is only possible thanks to a quirky U.S. ballot measure system which allows organizations and individuals to bypass politicians and put potential laws directly to a vote by the general population, just like they want to do with the presidency and the electoral college removal. Isn't that funny? As long as they can get enough signatures to support the measure in the first place. In California, that means collecting a tremendous 365,000 signatures. And so far for the last month, animal lovers across the state have been fanning out on the street corners every chance they can get clipboards in hand. The new measure would actually ban cages of any kind for hens, gestation crates, as we know, know as sow stalls in the UK, for mother pigs, so narrow that they can't turn around, veal crates for calves with restrict movement of their entire lives. And by the end of 2019, all hens would have to be cage-free, living at a minimum on an open barn floor or in an open or an indoor aviary with multiple levels for birds to go up and down. It would have... National implications apply not just to in-state farmers, but to any farmer doing business with the world's sixth largest economy. This is history in the making. Josh Balk, vice president of Farm Animals Protection for the Humane Society of the United States, HSUS, one of the numerous organizations that has supported the law, along with the Animal League Defense Fund, Compassion and World Farming and local groups as the San Diego Humane Society. This is the greatest shot farm animals ever had. And of course, that's what happens when you put progressives in positions like this. I mean, it's funny how it doesn't work for the bastion of left, uh, leftist cuisine outlets. You know, those ones with the confusing compost recycling garbage disposal bins such as Whole Foods. They had to admit their free-range chicken wasn't really free-range. When Amazon purchased Whole Foods last month, it, did just, it didn't just get the retail locations. It picked up Whole Foods baggage as well. Among the bigger issues inherited by Amazon appears to be a four-month investigation from the animal rights group Direct Action Everywhere. Do you know what direct action is? Antifa uses that. Refuse Fascism uses that. Kind of funny that that's in their name. Anyways, that challenges Whole Foods' core selling point of healthy and humane food. The group accused Pittman Family Farms, the maker of Mary's free-range chicken and a supplier to Whole Foods in six western states, of breaking its promise of free-range environments for its birds. 
Video of direct action everywhere's findings showed scattered fighting among chickens and smaller birds with injuries, including one with its eyes pecked out. They also allege evidence of debeaking a procedure where severing of the tip of the chicken's beak with a laser to prevent them from pecking is, is utilized. So these people are loving creation more than the creator. And they do so with direct action. So there's, it's not just, you know, animal rights that they're looking at. And yeah, I think humane, you know, methods for animals should be employed. That's, I mean, that's a no brainer. Who doesn't think that? But it's more of an attack on business corporations. It's an attack on capitalism. Animal rights was also one of the many special interests that has similar end games as the rest of them, along with an interesting history in totalitarianism. In fact, Hitler advocated for vegetarianism. Margot Wallach, 95, said that Hitler ate only the freshest fruit and vegetables during the two year or during her two and a half years that she was forced to check his food for traces of poison. During the Second World War, Ms. Wallach, a German citizen whose husband had been sent to fight was taken by the SS to Hitler's Eastern Front headquarters in modern-day Poland, known as the Wolf Slayer. There, she joined a team of a dozen other women whose job it was to protect Hitler from any attempts to poison him. It was all vegetarian, the most delicious fresh things from asparagus to peppers to peas, served with rice and salads. It was all arranged on one plate, just as it was to serve him. There was no meat, and I don't remember there being any fish. A Hitler Youth Manual from the 1930s promoted soya beans, which it called Nazi beans. How about them Nazi beans? As an alternative to meat. In 1942, Hitler told Joseph Goebbels that he intended to convert Germany to vegetarianism once he completed winning the war. But although he referred to meat broth as corpse tea, he was not fastidious about declining down meat. Diane Lucas... His cook before the war claimed that he was a fan of stuffed pigeon, and he was also known to be partial to Bavarian sausages and the occasional slice of ham. And with the hacking or the hijacking and the administration of our healthcare system in America, well, you would have to control the nutrition of the citizenry to be sure that you don't overload the system with bad diets promoting bad health. So this push towards that system only seems logical by the fascistic communist or you know those people that want government to run their lives think about what it does to business think about free-range chicken since whole foods isn't thinking about that concept and actually never did you need expanded acreage with land assets to accommodate this law whether it be inside many people let them roam outdoors and then that opens them up to predators come out here to the country you'll see those who allow their chickens to run free continually roaming across two-lane country roads they could be hit by vehicles at any moment. There's a way to humanely deal with your inventory or your monetary producers. Are there or have there been businesses acting unethical and have cut corners to treat their livestock in terrible situations? Sure. Humans are sinful people. Did Bernie Madoff take money to build a Ponzi scheme? Did Maduro, the leader of Venezuela, eat an empanada on national TV while his citizens were out there eating dogs because they're starving? Yeah. But that's where you come in. Patronize those businesses that engage in ethical behavior and activity. Vote for those leaders that aren't going to take you down the road of starvation. Are you going to know all of the businesses acting in this manner? Probably not. Eventually, their crimes will come to light and their justice will be served. Until then, you have to be diligent as much as you can be. But just as though 
Um, just the fact that you can't simply ban guns because an evil individual used one for heinous murders. You can't legislate morality into business. We have regulations. But to take it to a level that removes things like cages entirely is pretty ridiculous. And know that just like March for Our Lives, Women's March, Black Lives Matter, all these other movements, the real motives are for political control and they're shouted in, shrouded in good intentions and emotional pleas. Back with another story on environmentalism and its judicial activism in just a moment. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. The school system, as we've been talking about, is what perpetuates this longing for socialism and removal of the Constitution, which leads to the lawsuits that you see to even down to animal rights and environmentalism and whatever the case may be, they want to enforce this some form or fashion into our system. And it all comes from nefarious roots. So when you look at environmentalism, what's going on right now in California is pretty interesting because this is judicial activism. A federal judge in San Francisco has ordered parties in a landmark global warming lawsuit to hold what could be the first ever U.S. court hearing on the science of climate change. The proceedings scheduled for March 21st by U.S. District Court Judge William Alsup will feature lawyers for Exxon, BP, Chevron, other oil companies pitted against those for San Francisco and Oakland, California cities that have accused fossil fuel interest of covering up their role in contributing to global warming. I don't know how they're going to litigate that. I don't know how they're going to be able to uh, to show evidence of that. But apparently this is going to court. And didn't the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor, get in the chopper? Didn't he say he wanted to sue them for first degree murder? I mean, is he the I'm the solenator or is he the litigator? We knew he was the rhinoator, but when did he become the marxinator? I don't know. Anyways, back to the article. This will be the closest that we've seen to a trial on climate science in the United States to date, said Michael Berger, a lawyer who heads the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at uh, Columbia University. Well, there's a stalwart university of conservatism. Actually, it's not. Columbia University is as as left-wing as it can get. Experts on both sides say Alsup's call for climate change tutorial is unlike anything they've heard of before. Quote, I don't know of any judge who has asked for a tutorial like this, said Stephen Coonan, a physicist and former Energy Department undersecretary known for his contrarian views on global warming research. I think it's a great idea. Anybody having to make a decision about climate science needs to understand the full spectrum of what we know and what we don't know. (laughs) What we don't know is a lot. In the five-hour hearing... Both the cities and the oil companies will have a chance to present Alsup with their views on the climate or the climate change science history and the most important recent findings in the field. Quote, the court is forcing these companies to go on record about their understanding of climate science, which they have desperately tried to avoid doing, said Mark Simmons, general counsel for Earth Rights International, which helps groups worldwide litigate against major industries. And see, this is how they're going to frame it. They're not going to come out with credible facts. They're not going to come out with proven evidence. They're going to turn around and say, well, you show me 
how you don't understand climate science. And if they can do that effectively with an activist judge, then the judge is going to say, well, yeah, you are messing up the environment because you don't know what you're doing with it, even though we don't have any proven evidence. You see how this works? But that's how they control the economy. That's how they control freedom, energy resource control. This is why they don't mind pushing for Iran to have nuclear power capabilities. This is why Bill Clinton aided in having North Korea to have nuclear facilities, which obviously backfired because now we're dealing with a nuclear weapon armed North Korea, which is going to happen under Obama's Iran deal where we're going to deal with a nuclear-capable Iran. I don't understand what they thought they were getting out of this deal, but in both instances, they were, wink, wink, going to make nuclear power. But we have to reduce nuclear power here in America. You see, it, it isn't about climate change. It comes from a mixture of communism and fascistic roots of even Nazi Germany. And in fact, the infiltration into... Uh, into our system in the 70s, you know, when they were vilifying every, uh, every corporate business that deals with energy or any warehouse that had some sort of emissions, they, they launched onto that. And then that's where we got this endless cycle of bunk science. Oh, we're coming up on an ice age. Oh, really? I remember that when I was in kindergarten. We're going to have an ice age. Oh, what's going to happen? The ice age isn't really coming. Oh, you're going to do the greenhouse effect. That's where all the metal bands started to get self-aware in California in the late 90s and do songs about climate because of the greenhouse effect. It's going to be like a little aquarium. And what's going to happen is you're going to put a little blanket over the aquarium and that light is going to be beaming in, but none of the heat will be able to escape. And then what's going to happen then? We're going to burn up. Well, that never happened. Then there was the ozone hole. Oh, everything's going to seep out of the ozone hole, which is growing in the Antarctica. Stop using aerosol sprays. Well, those came back around and the hole shrunk. Huh. Funny how that happens. And then it comes into, well, it's, it's global warming. You know, we're, we're heating up the planet. And then we find out that Mars is heating up. Was the Mars rover out there emitting, you know, carbon emissions and messing up their environment? I mean, it's always, oh, the vehicles. We got we to gotta stop using vehicles. We need to use bikes. We need to use light rail. We need to use all these things that infringe upon personal freedom because the ability to move around only expands your personal freedom. When you're relying on a bus route dictated by the government, when you're relying on light rail, when you're, we don't, we have light rail where I live and no one uses it. You can drive by there and watch it. There's four people in this thing, and it drives up and down all day. Now, it's cool if you're going to, say, a baseball game. You can drive out 30 minutes to the light rail, get on board, take your right to the front, but you still have to go back to the light rail station to get your car and drive 30 minutes back to your house. Why didn't you just drive to the freaking stadium at that point? You see, that we don't need light rail where we live because we're not that type of metropolis. It works great in, in D.C., the metro, your subway system works great in New York, but it doesn't work in California. It doesn't work in Virginia. So it, you should listen to a little bit of this clip from a video I found, and it is a great explanation as to how the communist, how they've actually fused with Nazi fascist, and how they've become this new uh, anti-capitalist movement that has grown since the 70s, 
even though we know Russian inf infiltration has been going on since the turn of the 1900s, um, we can see how it has morphed what was this environmental conscience movement into something extremely nefarious. So you have Nazi practices that are focused on environmentalism, and you explore how the socialists have thrown in over time, and the trajectory from that union to today's climate movement. Yeah, it's, it's really embedded in German history, in post-war German history, because in the first 30 years after 1945, Germany, West Germany that is, was a model Western democracy. There's um, uh, a left-wing writer I quote in the book who, said, who complains that the SPD, the left of centre party, the equivalent of the Democrats, gave up the class war and embraced the American way of life. And Germany was like America, it embedded in Europe. That began to change in the 1970s. There is no other country in Western Europe and, and, and America that had such an influx of far-left radicals, the new left, the Frankfurt School, rising to power uh, in, through the, through the eight, 1980s and 1990s. And what is very significant is how the new left, these extremist radicals, embraced uh, the environmental positions of the Nazis. Explain sort of the twisted and perverse logic that takes us from anti-capitalism to environmentalism. Where do those views intersect? Well, Ben, you, you absolutely you put, put your finger on it. It's anti-capitalism is, is the, the uniting thing, anti the freedom of the individual. And whether you care to call it extreme left or extreme right, those are the things that unite those ideologies. Now, with, with if you like, the extreme right, their basic categories are to do with biology and, and, and race. And with the extreme left, it used to be class. But what you had is the extreme left gave, gave up on the working class. When the working class didn't revolt, as, the, as Marx and Engels predicted, they essentially gave up on rationality and they gave up on the working class. And they said the working class have been bewitched by consumerism uh, and so forth. And so they therefore bought into the irrational politics of what had been, if you like, the far right. So that's another kind of way that the left twist, the far left twisted itself into positions you see, the anti-rational, the nihilistic positions of the, of the Nazis. And, and it's fascinating. In your book, you walk through various ideologies and show them building a coalition around several factors, anti-capitalism in and of yeah. itself, you have the environmentalism and the anti-war movement as well. And yet when we talk about climate change, we're theoretically talking about science, not political ideology. Isn't that a critical point in and of itself? The thing to understand, and the thing I learned, in fact, in writing this book, is you have to look at what people actually do rather than what they say. So with climate change, we're meant to have wind and solar. But when Germans are given a choice, whether they want to have whether they want to cut carbon emissions or what, whether they want to close down nuclear power, they choose to cl close down nuclear power. And of all the countries in Western Europe, Germany has had this tradition of being most hostile to nuclear power. So the, the peace movement in, of the 1970s actually arose from... It, it began with an anti-nuclear power, civil nuclear power protests, and it very quickly morphed into anti 
you know, when Reagan and the arms build up and so forth, the Pershings and the cruise missiles, it turned from anti-civil nuclear power to anti the, the Western arms build up in response to the Soviet SS-20s. So all these things, things come together. But as I put it in the book, global warming is a pretext for a radical environmental agenda. It is not the primary cause that they're seeking to do. You have to look for that elsewhere. That's an excerpt of an interview with Rupert Darwall, the uh, author of the book Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. And it all goes back to totalitarian roots, whether it be Russia and communism, whether it be Adolf Hitler and fascism and Nazism. It's never conservative. It's never based on what they actually stand for. You know, it's not about the environment. It's not about animal rights. It's not about gun control in schools. Why were they out there protesting, saying we want net neutrality? We want a free Palestine? Because none of it has it. I mean, what does that do to... School safety, free in Palestine, condemning Israel and getting out there and saying that we need to reduce uh, carbon emissions and, and, and get rid of tariffs. What does that have to do with the school being safe? Nothing. And everything that they do, they will cloak it in some sort of heartfelt cause that people will go, hey, I, I want to take care of animals. I don't want to hurt the environment. I don't want to have dirty water. I don't want kids to get hurt in school. I don't. None of that is what anyone wants. But they use these movements for that purpose alone. And that's where we get this infiltration by totalitarians who the Democrat Party has basically finally burned itself of any moderation and has concentrated itself into these people. Now, on the other side of the break, I've got a good friend, the Bearded Patriot. He has the Beard Cast podcast. What's well, the Beard Bearded Patriot podcast? You can follow him on Twitter. He's going to sit down with me, and we're going to talk some some Parkland, Florida stuff on the other side of the break. Stick around. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade broadcast. Joining me now is the Bearded Patriot, good friend of mine. He has a podcast entitled The Bearded Patriot Podcast. You can find it on SoundCloud and iTunes. What's going on, Bearded Patriot? Hey, what's going on, man? How you feeling? I'm doing well. You know, they say from great beard comes great responsibility. So I want to hear... It's in in my intro, so I had, you know, it must be legitimate. It's funny. Every time I hear that, I think of... I don't know if you're familiar with the band Fu Manchu, but the the song Weird Beard always sticks in my head. (laughs) Love those guys. I'm going to have to look it up. (laughs) Yeah, look up Weird Beard by Fu Manchu. So so what's on your mind today? What what have you been thinking about with uh, things going on in the news cycle since the news cycle moves like a freaking, it's like on speed constantly. It's like doing eight ball hits. It's like the speed of light, you know, on meth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've been following a lot about the uh, the gun control stuff now because the thing is, is we had the the school shooting in um, Florida, you know, a few weeks back. Let's see, we're in mid March, so this was this probably about two or three weeks back. So, and and it seems to me that the gun control argument is still at the forefront, like it's something that can be added to you know like we can add more gun control and make things safer when in reality my point has always been you know most of these people on the left they they really just want a gun confiscation they can say no they don't want that they just want fully semi-automatic weapons you know all the crazy terms they use 
Oh yeah, high and, capacity you know, magazines. Yeah, I, I joke around. Magazines. I joke around and say, yeah, I got my subscription to High Capacity Magazine the other day. So you know they're going to uh, outlaw that someone soon. Should definitely, someone should definitely make that if it's not a thing yet. <laughs> but you know, and then assault rifles, which is, was an invented term. You know, it's not even you know a real term. You know, they're they're just rifles. You know, yeah. And and because they look scary and they say they look like you know military rifles, when in reality, you know, you and I both know that those military rifles, you know, they you know have fully automatic. They usually have like a three round burst and then you know semi automatic. That's not the case unless you have some very expensive permit that you got to go through the government for. And it's, it's hard, hard to get. Yeah. So my, my problem has been talking about the, the gun control. And I, you know, I'd much rather than just come out and say they want a gun confiscation. Cause frankly, the expanded background checks that we've been hearing about is not going to do anything. It's really been a government failure in yeah. not reporting these things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, remember the Sutherland Springs, the church shooting, the guy was in the military. I think he was in the air force and, he had all those issues with beating his wife and what have you and mental issues and and all of that stuff factored into his background check. But they didn't even give that information over to the proper authorities that would have caused he him to charges. He had felonies. That's right. He would have failed on getting a weapon if if all that was done the way it was supposed to be done. Yeah. And it was uh, this. The problem with this was he was in the Air Force, I believe. And it was, it, you know, and. I'm I'm just like I'm sure you are a strong supporter of the military, but this is nothing short of a failure on the Air Force part because they didn't report this because he would not have passed the background check. How can he fail a background check when these things aren't reported? That's like if I went and got busted with a kilo of cocaine and the cops just didn't put it in the system. Yeah, and it's funny because that's been my argument the whole time. In fact, I always say uh, common sense investigation control because what's going on is they – they have all these measures set up, but every bit of this was a failure of government. I mean, the failure of the military to report, the failure of the FBI to uh, take serious uh, threats, um, the failure of the local government, you know, the local police department, um, the fact that the federal government was paying the local government to basically uh, rewarding them with not reporting that their crime rate went down because they just didn't tell anybody that they were you know, apprehending people. And they were getting well, yeah, rewarded they, with federal funds because of it. And they're buying these slick new vehicles now. Exactly. And they to, to lower the crime rate in certain places. And I know there was some of this going on in um, Parkland where the shooting just happened. But they actually weren't reporting certain misdemeanors. And I don't know if it happened there. But in some places, I know they reclassified certain things from felonies to misdemeanors to change the reporting. Yeah. So it's 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 a failure from top down, all the way top from government, all the way down to local law enforcement. And I'm not talking about you know you know what they want to say about police officers and police brutality. You know, I'm talking about the 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 you know bureaucracy and and the politics of it. Not not you know the actual officers. I mean, you know, when there's issues there, as you I'm sure have seen with police officers, you know. 99% of the time it's handled and they're disciplined. They're kicked off. They're trot, you know, I exactly. just read a story the other day about, you know, a cop who, you know, beat and tased a guy who it, it didn't, you know, he, he wasn't called for, you know, and, um, and he just got charges against him and he was, he had to resign and he got charges against him, but they're talking about what he did was wrong. And it was hundred percent was, but we, they focus on, you know, that and not that, you know, they were actually held accountable and and they focus on that and not the politics of the police department, which has failed time after time after time, like in Parkland, when, you know, they, they say that the guy was ordered not to go in. I don't know if that's the case. Frankly, that didn't matter to me because 
you know, I feel like even if he was told not to go in just to protect the kids, he should have gone in. You're right. And then look what they did to the two SWAT team members that did go in. They basically yeah. pulled them off the team. There's something yeah, them off the team. yeah, there's something bigger behind all of that because I, I find it I'm not like I said, I'm not one to get into conspiracy theories, but I find it kind of funny no, that as soon as everything was said and done, the women's march apparatus was there to support the march for life or march for our lives uh, and they made David hogg and into this instant yeah. you know Emma, instant phenomenon. Cameron Kasky, yeah. Yeah, oddly enough, you know, who I called the Aleppo girl, um, uh, alien uh, uh, Emma Gonzalez, I call her alien yeah. as a joke, she's yeah. magically alien. disappeared. We don't hear from her, but David Hogg's... Yeah, we, we David Hogg and Cameron Kasky, and uh, we've heard from them, like, nonstop. Constantly. And, and the, the funny thing is about that is... You know, Kyle Kashev, who's the other guy, but he tends to be more gun rights and not more gun control. Although I have disagreed with him on saying expanded background checks. He did say that. And I just as I've said, I don't see what you can expand them to. Yeah, I don't either. For the most part, he's talking about protecting the rights of, of people that own firearms. Now, the funny thing about this is I was looking, you know, recently and it's and I know David Hogg, I think he had tweeted something out saying, started talking about we need to be bipartisan. It's not Democrats, not Republican, but he wasn't saying that before. And now that Cameron or uh, Kyle Kashoff came out saying it and it's gotten a decent response and he's getting more airtime now, it seems like he's shifted into, oh, that might be a better way to go instead of, and it makes me question the legitimacy of, you know, what they're really saying. Now, I don't disagree about what a terrible thing these kids get went through. I mean, in the building or not, just being there is traumatic. Yeah. But we're not talking about them being there in trauma. We're talking about them being in the spotlight and talking politics. Yeah, well, and that's the funny thing. There have been no slideshows of the people that were, uh, you know, victims that have succumbed to their injuries. That There have been no uh, references from David Hogg himself saying, this friend of mine was killed. You know, he said his sister had friends, but even then he's contradicted how many of, his, of her friends were actually uh, affected. But then on yeah. top of that, you see tweets with him saying, Oh, uh, net neutrality and tariffs. I'm like, what does any of that have to do with his that. gun cause? It's all that. Yeah, it's That's all that. And and that really makes me question the motives. You know, and I hate to say it. I, I really do hate to say this, but it makes me start to think it's like it was never about the tragedy. And I hate to say that because it was a terrible tragedy. These kids should have never been exposed in any way to it. Exactly. But it makes me question, you know, maybe in the beginning it was, you know, a legitimate like uh, 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 an emotional response. You know, for sure it was, and they, they really are like, we need to change something. This is terrible. But as they got more airtime, something shifted, and now it's like, oh, well, you know, we could, you know, make something of this. Yeah, they've springboarded off to every type of political leftist talking point you could think of at this point. And exactly. you see, you know, I covered this on last week's show. You see Linda Sarzar and uh, was it Tamika Mallory and some of these people who are yes. the Women's March people that are supporting. The, they're basically one part of the apparatus that was instantly there to help them suddenly make a 501c3 that they got all this money for. They are uh, hanging out with Farrakhan and they don't even care. You know, no one cares no, that Farrakhan's out there, gone, yeah. you know, ripping on Jews and, and saying, you know, the gays oh, are. He said, I hate the Jews. He said they're my enemy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he said, you know, we're going to get on Hollywood for making men into women and women into men. And yet none of that gets looked at as though. Uh, remember, he said to he said something about 
um, women should be in the kitchen rattling eggs instead of taking their kids to Mickey D's back in 2012 at his last event. I mean, yeah, but Obama's hugging it out with this guy. Yeah, and even Colin Powell. It's amazing. Colin Powell. The f- yeah. The fact that the, that those people are involved show that there's there's so much hypocrisy that they're not in it for simply gun violence and supporting the kids. They're using it to raise money for the DNC. They're using it for every other platform position they want to engage, you know, the uninformed into baiting them into it's, it's unbelievable. Well, the thing that kills me about that is he speak on Farrakhan and, and the contradictory nature of, you know, saying things and not saying things about him, but what's the, um, I can't remember the church name that protests all the, all the funerals and says, they oh, deserve to die. Westboro Baptist church, Westboro Baptist church. They have like a family of people. They're like 20 people. That's it. Yeah, you know, and you hear about them anytime they're even. Now they're they're terrible. God, you know, I might throw a rock at them if I saw them protesting a funeral of a soldier. Oh heck yeah, I'd but, I'd, I'd, I'd but, rev a car yeah. up near them. <laughs> yeah, just, just make them mad or something. But yeah. you know, Farrakhan. You know, anytime you see him talking, he has more people just listening to him than in their whole church, and yet Obama's hugging it out with them. Like you said, what's her, uh, Maxine Waters is hugging it out with them. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you said, Colin Powell or whatever, or just like acting like it's nothing. They sitting there talking about, I hate the Jews. They're my enemy. They run everything. You know I mean? It's, it's amazing. It really is. Well, and it's funny too, because it exactly mirrors the same view as the white supremacists that rallied up in Northern Virginia, you know, versus Antifa. You've yeah. got Antifa all over Berkeley college and, and just like attacking people. And you know, the left's fine with it because, you know, they're taking their, taking the law in their own hands with some vigilante justice, but you know, somebody's got to beat up the fascist and you look did at you, it. Did you see, um, did you see Crowder's undercover video? of that? Oh yeah. That was amazing. It just, <laughs> or not, they handed not gay Jared, a ice pick and, yeah. <laughs> and didn't get a K bar at the store. Oh, and they then they, they off shotgun hooked up encrypted apps that, so that they could communicate. It was oh, yeah. unbelievable. I mean, but you know, yeah, living here, a big problem. Do you really? I mean, you know, being a Virginian, a fellow Virginian, do you really think there's a huge white supremacy group in Charlottesville? No, <laughs> sure. I, mean, I think they're probably going out for some Star Hill Brewery uh, craft beer. Yeah, but there's no, no, what? No, there's no big group there. What happened was they had the the Confederate statue there. They, they were protesting it being taken down. And, you know, I've said since the beginning with all that stuff, you know, if the local government who has those statues wants to vote it out, do it the right way, you know, exactly people going and taking it down, I, I, you know, it's history and that's a good argument. And, you know, the Confederacy had slavery and that's an okay argument, but at the same time, there's a way to go about it. And it's not this way. So these guys went up there to protest that. And then Antifa showed up and it just became this huge thing when in reality, 90% of those people probably weren't from Charlottesville. Now, I don't know. I don't have the demographics. You're probably right, though. And that's my thing is, you know, when you look at Westboro Baptist Church versus Farrakhan, it's the same thing. You've got, you know, the white supremacist groups out there with the tiki torches that they got from Home Depot. There's probably 50 of them at the most versus all of these Antifa people. And they're trying to make it out to be this existential threat where I'm going, you know, the last time I remember there being an issue with skinheads and the sharps was back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s in the punk scene that's basically been gone for a while yeah it's it's not been a thing a huge thing and the fact is is you know we can sit here and say antifa's terrible we can sit here and say black lives matter mainly wants to get rid of police we can sit here and say 
White supremacists are terrible. That guy that ran over that lady at the Charlottesville thing was an awful human being, and may he rot in prison. Yeah. But, you know, the fact is, is, you know, they're not looking at it like that. They're saying, basically, you support the white supremacists if you say Black Lives Matter is not a good group. Yeah, exactly. And they want they want police dead and they, they lie. And Antifa is essentially a terrorist organization. You know, when you say that, it's like, no, no. But yet then they want to make it seem like you support white supremacists. I'm like, no, I can you know disagree with all of them and think they're terrible people. Exactly. And, and these same people can sit there and say, oh, I'm going to take a knee with Colin Kaepernick and, you know, uh, F the police. Yet they're wanting them to be the only ones with the guns. And they think that what the sheriff did in Parkland was a fantastic job when he just dropped the ball all, all across the board. Of course. I mean, you <laughs> see, there's like a the funny thing about that. And this is completely off topic, but there's like a Lamborghini sheriff thing there with his face on it. <laughs> that, Have you seen that? I, I saw that. That's been my running joke has been they basically said, you know what? We're not going to report all of the incidents and it's going to make our crime rate go down and the federal government's going to give us money and we're going to go out and buy these Lambos and put our face all it's over. Like it's, when, it's like he went home one day and said, honey, I'm finally getting the Lambo. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like <laughs> buying muscle cars for the police force. It, it's unbelievable. Yeah, nice. And they don't, they have no shame in it. No, they don't care. I mean, he, he, he basically talked and talked and talked and, and talked about how it wasn't his fault. He did everything he could. And now he's not in the news cycle because, the heat got a little too strong and he realized that people aren't agreeing with him. Yeah. I I don't see him making it through the next election. (laughs) If he, if he does, there's something seriously wrong because he dropped the ball in a big way. And, you know, at least on some level, you know, that's, I'm not going to say it's his fault because this kid did this on his own. You know, I would never say it's someone's fault that didn't pull the trigger, but at the same time, you know, he possibly could have made it so it didn't happen if certain things were done. Yeah. Now, I'm going to get ready to run. Um, do, what, what do you got coming up on your podcast? Tell the listeners. Well, yeah, I'm working on um, – I, I actually scaled it back a little bit. I used to do an hour podcast uh, for Talk America Radio, and I stepped off of there for a while to kind of rebuild, build it up a little more, give better content to my listeners. So you can look for that in the coming weeks and months, and it's going to be – start building back up, eventually get to an hour again, but I really want to give a quality podcast, so I've kind of done that. So you look for, for a better podcast, a better Bearded Patriot in the future. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being on the show, and uh, we're going to catch up with you next time. We'll have you back on very soon. All right, Bearded? Sounds great, man. Have a good one, all right? All right, brother. Take care. The Bearded Patriot, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Check out his podcast on SoundCloud. Look up The Bearded Patriot. You can also find him on Twitter, at The Bearded Patriot. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Adrian Slade. You can hear me on Talk America Radio every Sunday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, iHeart, and also tune in app. You can check us out on Patreon. Subscribe, $2 a month, patreon.com slash Adrian Slade Show, or even get the free Adrian Slade Show Roku channel in your streaming store. We'll see you guys next time.